Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We've been going through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, and we're going to continue that tonight uh, in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Last week, we talked about Herod and how Herod, you know, when he, he had... Uh, made some political moves and the people were chanting that, you know, he had the voice of a God and not of a man and that because he didn't give praise and honor to God, it's like God was listening, God was watching and God brought instant judgment on him for that, that pride and that arrogance in his heart. And we don't see that a lot today. We don't see that instant judgment from God a lot. But little stories like that make us aware that God is always watching and that, that, that what's happening is that judgment is being delayed. And it doesn't, that moment shows you how God feels about it. It's just that you don't always see those actions, you don't always see it manifest and, and come out. And one place, Paul is talking about sinners like that and he says, they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. In other words, there's a day of wrath and a day of judgment that's coming. And sometimes when people act a certain way, they think that there is no judgment or there are no consequences or there are no, you know, there is no wrath from God associated with it. And that's not true. The Bible says that the wrath of God is actually being stored up. And the reason for that is because it's the will of God that all should repent and all should come to eternal life. It's not the will of God that anyone would experience the wrath or the judgment of God. It's, and so the reason it's delayed and the reason that sometimes we, we have these questions as believers like, man, does God care about this? How come it seems like the wicked are getting away with things? And you even see Bible writers that have the same question. Um, and the reason for that is because the wrath of God and the judgment of God is being stored up. And for those who are deserving of wrath and judgment, they could have it all stored up, and then right at the end of their life, they could repent, and they could ask God to forgive them, and God is happy to have, to have Christ as their sacrifice and their what the Bible calls propitiation for that wrath. The Bible says that Christ actually absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And so it's not the will of God that any should experience that wrath. But when you see, or judgment, or whatever you want to call it, but whenever, whenever you read stories like we read last week in, uh, in Acts chapter 13, where Herod makes this, this, uh, this sin of pride, and then the judgment comes instantly. We don't see that very often. But it doesn't mean that that's not how God is seeing it still. And so we read another story about Nebuchadnezzar, and how Nebuchadnezzar... He walked in pride and arrogance, and God warned him about it, and, and he wanted him to repent as well, but he didn't repent. And then he stood up on his palace, and he looked across the whole land, and he said, look what I've built, look what I've done. And instantly, the judgment of God came on him as well. In that instance, he had 12 months to repent before that happened, and he didn't. And as a result, he experienced the judgment of God for seven years, and then he did repent, and God removed it all, and the Bible says that he restored everything back to him that he'd lost. So you can, you can see things from these, these stories that we read in the Bible. You can see God's view on things. You can see God's perspective on things. And we're supposed to learn from that for our own lives. 
You know, so if God saw pride in Herod, he felt one way. Well, what if God sees pride in us? Same, same. He, he, he's not like he was especially mad at Herod for some reason or Nebuchadnezzar. If he sees pride in our lives, that's, his, that's the way he feels about it. However, he wants mercy for us, not judgment. So we don't always experience those consequences immediately. And praise God that we can repent and that we can ask for forgiveness. Thank God that we can call on the cross and, and, and fall at the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness and that that judgment will not come on our lives because of that. Isn't that good news? So in Acts chapter 13, we pick up tonight. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Bible says that, notice closely verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, I've always made this observation. Anytime you go through the book of Acts, you will notice how often this phrase is used, the Holy Spirit said, or it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit, or uh, the Holy Spirit spoke, you know, through a dream, or, but basically what you see is that we serve a talking God. We serve a God that communicates. And I drive this home as much as I can because it's one of the things in my life that I depend on so much. I depend on the Holy Spirit that's on the inside of us. And you see this in the book of Acts, how important the, the voice of God was to the early believers. They depended on it, and they made decisions based on what he said or didn't say. You know, so one time you read where Paul, it says that he was going to go into such and such nation, and the Holy Spirit restrained him and said, no, don't go there. In other words, I would have went there, and I didn't see anything wrong with it, but the Holy Spirit stopped me and said, no, don't go there. In this instance... They're praying, they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, and it was in the middle of that worshiping, in the middle of that fasting. Why did it happen then? Well, because when you take time to worship and pray and fast, your spirit gets sensitive and you can hear things that you can't hear when you're distracted, living by the flesh, just feeding the flesh all the time, living in a carnal, what the Bible calls a carnal lifestyle. Just, you know, we're very in tune with the flesh, right? Very easy to hear what the flesh wants. Anybody have, ever have any questions when you're hungry? No, because it's very easy to hear from, the fl hear from the flesh when you're hungry. If you can't feel it in here, it'll actually start rumbling where you can, you know, actually feel it, maybe even hear it. You ever been sitting next to somebody and they heard your stomach rumble? Other people can even hear from your flesh. I mean, it's easy to hear from the flesh. You know, how about when you're tired, you get sleepy, you get grouchy, you get irritable, you're nodding off. It's, it's easy to know what the flesh wants. It's easy to know when the flesh is hungry, easy to know when the flesh is tired, easy to know when the flesh is frustrated, easy to know when the flesh is depressed. Very easy to be in touch with the flesh, but it's not quite as easy to be in touch with the spirit. And that's why when they were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting, they were, they, were, they were in that place where they could hear from God. And that's why at the beginning of the year, we take time to fast and pray. And if you need answers from God and you can't hear from God, and I hear this from believers all the time, 
Well, I, I can't, I don't ever hear from God. God doesn't ever speak to me. And what I want to say sometimes without being, because I don't want to be too hard, because I understand what people mean when they say that. But a lot of times when people say that, what they're really saying is, I haven't devoted enough time to spiritual things to be able to hear from God. And, and I hear people say, because if I see from the Bible, I see from Genesis to Revelation, I see people of God hearing from God. I see people of God getting answers when they need answers. I see people of God getting prayers answered, God speaking to them in many different ways through the Word of God, through prophet, by the Holy Spirit. So I just say, well, if you need to hear from God, seek Him till you get the answer. But see, that takes discipline, and that takes work, and that takes setting time aside, and a lot of people will not do that. But that's what they were doing here. While they were sitting on the couch eating potato chips and Netflix, they heard from the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what it says. While they were out busy running around to every event, everything, posting on Facebook, the Holy Spirit said, no. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. And what he said was very important. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And notice verse 3. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they were fasting and praying and heard from God. Then they didn't just send them out. They started fasting and praying again before they sent them out. Because they, they, they understand something that maybe we've missed. They understand that there are real tangible answers in heaven. There are real tangible answers from God. But sometimes it takes a little bit of digging. Sometimes it takes a little bit of pursuit. It takes a little bit of laying things aside and making God a priority. I mean, think about the things that the Bible says on this topic. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Ask and you might receive. Ask and you could receive. No, ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. But those are all action words. Those are all words of pursuit. Those are all words of going. And he says, he says many times throughout Scripture, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And God knows what it means for somebody to seek him with all of their heart. And he knows what it means for somebody to seek them with half of their heart. And I can tell you that God knows every area of our life. He knows every detail. He knows what you pour your passion into. He knows what you're most passionate about in your life. He knows where you spend most of your time and your, most of your energy. What consumes most of your thoughts and most, most of your passion. And if there's any area in your life where there's more passion, more devotion to that thing than to God, then you're not seeking God with all of your heart. I mean, when we say, God, I'm seeking you with all of my heart, but he can look at other areas in your life and you go, no, you're seeking that with all your heart. You're seeking me with half of your heart. You're not seeking me with all of your heart because I, I know what it looks like in your life when you seek something with all of your heart. It looks like this thing over here. It looks like your job or it looks like this hobby or it looks like entertainment. That's what it looks like in your life when you seek something with all of your heart. Look, in Louisiana, I, I get in trouble for this sometimes, but 
I just say it periodically anyway. But in Louisiana, you can usually find what it looks like to seek something with all of your heart because we live in sportsman's paradise. You know, when deer season comes around, I see a lot of men that are very, very half-hearted in worship, but they are all of their heart when it comes to deer hunting. Or name it, fill in the blank. I'm throwing that one out. If that's your thing, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend anybody. Uh, And maybe with ladies, I don't know. I'm not as in tune there. You know, it could be shopping or something else. Maybe your kids. I don't know. But, But we have things in our life that we know how to pour ourselves into with all of our heart. And then when it comes to God, a lot of times we just want to barely give a a, a little bit of effort, and that ought to be enough. We go, you know, I mean, I prayed about it, and I didn't see an answer. I mean, I I asked God about it. I went to church a few times, and I didn't see anything change. Yeah, well, that's not seeking it with all your heart. And I'm not even saying that it always requires that, and that's not even to condemn you. But let's not also, let's not deceive ourselves either and pretend like we're seeking God with all of our heart when we're not, or if we're not, I should say. Because many are, I understand. Many are seeking God with all of their heart. But many are not as well. And at least we ought to be honest enough to say, I'm not seeking God with all of my heart. Because I know what it looks like to seek God with all of my heart. I know areas of my life where I seek that thing with all of my heart. And it gets the best part of my energy and devotion and time and passion. And many, they don't do that with the Lord. And then... They will complain. They'll complain that they're not getting the answers or I can't hear from God or I can't do. And I, and I say this, listen, God's never let anybody down. That's my, God's never let anybody down. It's never, God's never shortchanged anybody. And if you think you've been shortchanged by God, then you need to go to him and you need to seek him and he'll show you how it really wasn't on his end. So, again, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting Worshiping the Lord and fasting, they, they decided to set time aside for God. And it was during that time of fasting that the Holy Spirit said. He gave them important instructions. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Man, isn't it wonderful to receive clear instruction from the Lord? Isn't it wonderful to to know what you're supposed to do, to to get clarity on like, I mean, how many of you would love to go home tonight, you're laying in bed, and God just speak to you just like, just clearly say, hey, here's what I want you to do with the next six months of your life, and just lay it out, and you go, man, I can do that, it's clear now, now I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. That clarity from God, you know, that's the same Holy Spirit when it says the Holy Spirit said, same Holy Spirit that you have on the inside of you. And I dare say that the call of God on your life is no less important than the call of God on Barnabas' life and on Saul's life. There are, everybody in here has a call of God on their life. And I don't believe that God hides things from us. And, and we like to say things that, you know, to try to make it, make it sound okay, but it's really just an excuse because we haven't been doing our part. So we'll say things like, well, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's just a way of saying, I don't know what the heck is going on, and it's probably on God's end. (laughs) 
You know that's not a scripture, right? You don't ever read that. That's not a Bible. I know that's like a really popular thing. The Lord works in mysterious ways, but it's actually not a verse. It's not in there. Lord works in mysterious ways. Well, they're probably more mysterious to some than they are to others because people that have spent time seeking him might get some clarity on how he works a little bit better than others. So, no, they don't have to be mysterious, and I don't see that in Scripture where God tries to hide himself from those that are seeking him. I see where God tries to reveal himself to people that are seeking him. Even people that were very, very sinful and very, very displeasing to God and on the brink of disaster and judgment from God, when they would turn and seek him and repent, he would usually show them mercy. Think about Nineveh. You remember when Jonah went to Nineveh? God had a powerful word for them of judgment. They repented. He forgave them. This happens over and over again to people that will seek God. So verse 3, they're fasting, praying. They laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas. They sent them out. John Mark goes with them. They begin preaching all over Cyprus. They encounter uh, the magician Elimus. He's blinded by the power of God. Uh, The magician is because... He was, he was uh, confronting Paul and Barnabas. So that all happens in a few verses. Then in verse 13, because we can't read it all, so you can go back and read it. But verse 13, now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this, this ends up being a much bigger deal later. Here, we just mention it real quick and move on. But John Mark joined them on this missionary journey, and then when they got uh, to Pamphylia, John left them in the middle of the trip and returned to Jerusalem. This ends up being a big deal later because Barnabas and Paul end up having a disagreement over this issue. But that's, that's later. We'll come to that in a few chapters. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I want to tell you that we're about to read quite a long passage of Scripture. But the sermon that they gave here is probably the the most concise, clear explanation of the gospel that we actually have in the whole Bible. It's the... It's, it just kind of sums, he literally goes from Genesis to the end in just a few verses. So pay real close attention. I know sometimes our attention spans are short, but as we read the Word of God, let's really give our attention because I think there's a lot of power in what we're about to read. So they, they came to the synagogue, and, you know, I don't know what their intention was. They didn't, they didn't force themselves. They didn't even uh, invite themselves or anything like that, but the men noticed that they were there and they asked them if you have any word of encouragement to share it. So verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whom I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt... Worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe if one tells it to you. So this is the sermon. I mean, he, he goes from Genesis all the way to the end. He says, he says, look, we all have the same heritage, right? We're all Jews. We all have the same heritage. Father Abraham, we all know about Saul, David. We know about the prophets. We know about all of that. And all of them spoke about this one man who was coming, even John the Baptist, who they... They greatly respected. Even John the Baptist, who you saw and, and, and respected, he said he wasn't the Messiah, but one was coming after him. And he said, who, who else was it but Christ? Who else could it have been but, but Christ? He said, but the rulers crucified him in fulfillment of the Scripture. But God raised him from the dead. And it was through his life that we all have forgiveness and we all have healing. And I love that one line, that he came to do and accomplish what the law could not accomplish. In other words, what we've all been trying to get out of the law and couldn't get, we can get out of Christ. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So their hearts were stirred. They heard the message Paul said. They said, man, come back and explain this, you know, next week. We want to, we want to hear about it. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city (laughs) gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Man, isn't that amazing? One sermon. I guess I need to work on my sermons a little more. (laughs) One sermon. He preached one sermon. The whole city came out to hear the next week. But how many of you know Satan's not going to just sit back and let that happen? He never does. He ha- he's, he's, he's always busy at work, too. Next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, here's what he's saying. They're at a very pivotal moment, and you see this in the book of Acts, this kind of shifting, and even through the rest of the New Testament, you see this shifting where salvation was offered for the Jews, and remember, they were the people of God before we were the people of God. They were the covenant people of God, and that's the whole story of the Old Testament, is basically them rejecting God over and over and over and over and over again, and in this last moment, you have the Messiah comes, they, they crucify him, they reject him, and Paul, there's this, you know, this one more chance. He's saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you have thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, this is not that revolutionary to us because we're, we've been raised in America where you know, the gospel is for everyone. And we're just, we've grown up with that, and that's always been, and we've never known it any other way. But it wasn't always that way. It was, a, it was a moment in history where it was the Jews, and it was the Gentiles. It was everyone, all the non-Jews, everyone outside of that. Even Jesus, you remember, was preaching one time, and a lady uh, who was not a Jew came for salvation, and he said, he said, I'm not, he said, this food is not for the dogs. He said, it's not for you, which would have been so offensive to me. But he said, this isn't, this isn't for you. Even then, though, she pursued him and he, he reached out to her. But this was a crucial moment in history where the, the gospel message in salvation was now offered to everyone. Keep in mind, this is more of a spiritual thing than it is a natural thing. Because no one can come to God except he draw them. No one can repent except he draw them. So... What this is talking about is almost like a time of repentance. Uh, repentance is a gift. The, the ability to even feel the need to repent, even, the ability to even have your heart convicted and to know that there's something wrong is a gift from God. And what he was saying here is that that door, that spiritual door, that window of repentance is about to be closed on you and it's going to be open for someone else. And that's exactly what happened. So, he says, you thrust it aside. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So it happened instantly. Apparently in this crowd, they had Jews and Gentiles that were there listening. When they heard them say that, they all started shouting. <laughs> they said, man, we get to be part of the covenant people of God. And as many as were, uh, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So it's almost like this was the last chance, in a sense, for the Jewish people as a whole. Because, you know, they, when Christ came, they rejected him, and they were the ones that crucified, them, crucified him. And then after that, the word of the Lord, though, is still preached to them on the day of Pentecost, you know, here at other places. And there's still that door of repentance. But this is where you start to see it close, right here. And I want us to look, that's, that's the whole chapter, but I want us to look in Luke chapter 14 also because Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 14. He also prophesied in advance that this was going to happen. Luke 14, 15. He's at a, a banquet that he's been invited to with lots of Jewish people there. And when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Not sure what that means. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So if you read this and then this other, uh, other gospels have little variations on this account. But basically, the Jews heard this, and they knew that, that he was talking about them. And basically, the parable is just saying that the invitation, was for, the invitation for, gospel, for the gospel, the invitation for sonship, okay, the, the invitation for status in the kingdom of God, was first extended to the Jewish people. Now, if you read the Bible, you find out that it, it never really had much to do with the Jewish people, to be honest with you. And, and it's very clear because 
we all came from Adam and Eve, right? That's the story of the Bible. We all came from Adam and Eve. So everybody was Jewish in that sense. <laughs> and when you read the genealogy and you read the lines, you know, after Noah, you, Noah had, you know, three sons and they all come out. And then you read about them fighting later. Well, the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all the ites, you know, they're all fighting. Really, they all came from one of those sons and from one of those backgrounds. It never really had much to do with the nation of Israel. I'll tell you what it had to do with. It had to do with Abraham. It was one man that pleased God, pursued God, sought God, listened to God, and God made a covenant with him. And everything God did, this, this shows you the faithfulness of God. Everything God did after that was in fulfillment of that covenant to Abraham. The, the, the people of Israel never earned or deserved anything that God did for them. And so many times as you read through the Bible, God would look at the nation of Israel and he would say, if it were not for the covenant that I made with your father Abraham, I would wipe you all out right now. But because of your father Abraham, because of your father Abraham, he kept pointing back to that. So, you know, sometimes people get confused on this because they think, well, you know, the people of Israel are the people of God. Not really. Abraham was a man that sought God, that pleased God, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And, and so for generation after generation after generation, you see God just fulfilling that promise to Abraham over and over and over again. That's how faithful he was. And that went on for thousands of years. Because of what he promised to Abraham. And thank God that eventually he said, you know what? I'm not going to just keep this promise to the children of, to, of Abraham. He said, I'm going to include anyone that will have faith like Abraham. And this is why in the New Testament we are also called children of Abraham. Not children by nationality or ethnicity. But children of faith like Abraham. In other words, anyone who will believe God and believe in Jesus like Abraham believed me all the way back then. He said, they're going to they're get that same covenant that I gave to Abraham. And they're going to be brought into this family. So even going all the way back to Abraham, it really always had to do with faith. And it was the faith of Abraham that got the attention of God in the first place. And so then in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, you find out that Anybody that will have faith like Abraham, he said, you're going to get the same thing that I promised to him. You're going to be part of that covenant family because you have that same spirit of faith that Abraham had. So, this parable is powerful because it's explaining this process. And he's saying, look, I have gone over and above extending this invitation to you. But time after time, you've rejected it. You've killed my prophets. You've rejected me over and over and over and over and over again. And he said, now I'm going out beyond the Jewish people. He said, I'm going out to the streets. I'm going to the poor, the crippled, the lame. Because that's how the Jewish people thought of it. They saw themselves as above everyone else. Not just from a, you know, ethnic or nationality standpoint. It was because we are the covenant people of God. And you are all, you know, filth, uncircumcised Philistines, you know, type mindset. And we know God and you serve false gods. And that was kind of the mentality. 
And God's, and so this idea that they're going to go, that the, the man who's putting on this banquet is going to say, you know what, forget them. We're going out to bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, those that have no status, those that have no money, those that have no standing. He says, I'd rather have them at my banquet than you. This was an affront to them. And then he said, well, your house is still not full. He said, okay, go out beyond them. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel, compel people to come in. This is another way of saying go out to the other side of the tracks. Go to the red light district. Go, go over there and get all those people that nobody wants anything to do with. That's, that's New Testament for that area. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were first invited shall taste my banquet. He said, these are the people that I want around me. Because it's not about status. It's about those that will respond. About those that have enough humility to believe. And anyone who believes, anyone who believes is welcome at my table. That's what God is saying. Now, the way that I translate that for us today, because again, you know how easy it is to look at people in the Bible and see their faults and their mistakes. But I think about the church today, and I go, you know, when Jesus first, when, when Jesus appeared on the earth, there was a group of people that were expecting him, right? They, they were expecting the Messiah. Jewish people were expecting the Messiah. They taught about it. In their synagogues, they were the experts on it. They, they, every Sunday, every Sabbath, they got in their churches, they told them about the Messiah, they explained to them what was happening, yet those were the people that missed it when he came. And there's so many things about Jesus' first coming that are symbols and like foreshadows of the second coming. And it makes me wonder... You know, if, if we just compare apples to apples, is the church, the, is the current church going to be ready for the second coming of Christ? I mean, there's nothing saying that we're not just like the Pharisees and we know it, we talk about it, we're expecting it, we're looking for it, but are we going to be the very ones to miss it because we've, we've fallen asleep, we, with, we've become drunk with the spirit of this world? And for me, I don't want to assume that that's not the case. In other words, I always want to stay alert because the New Testament tells me over and over and over again, be sober, be vigilant, do not fall asleep, stay awake. That's all the terms surrounding the second coming. He says, don't let it catch you off guard like a thief in the night. He said, you have to stay awake. You have to be ready. He gives the parable of the ten virgins. And he said, they all, they all had oil in their lamps. They were all waiting. They were all expecting. But five fell asleep. Or, or they all fell asleep. But five of them didn't have enough oil to make it to the end. So these are all things that are surrounding the second coming. And if I look at the church world today as a whole. And I ask myself, is the bride of Christ, is the American church, and I'll just, I'll just stick to the American church, not worldwide, but if I just look at the American church and I go, is she ready for the return of Christ? And I would say that there are a percentage that are, but I have great concerns about the church at large because I think there are a lot of people that, there are a lot in the churches uh, today that look way more and 
have a, have a lot more characteristics like what we see in the seven churches of Revelation. The church of Laodicea that was lukewarm and backslidden. We see a lot of characteristics from these churches that Jesus rebuked and said, you're not ready. He said, now you have a great reputation with man. He said, people look at you and think, man, these guys are on fire for the Lord. They're loving God. He said, but I'm looking at you telling you, you are cold. And you're not where you need to be, and you need to repent and turn to God. So I'm not one to just go, you know, oh, yeah, we're ready, man. We're ready for the return of God. We're good with God. Everything is good. I see a lot in the Bible that causes me to go, you know what? I'm going to continue examining my heart. And I'm going to continue examining my thoughts and my lifestyle and how I love others and how I'm praying and how I'm seeking God. I'm never going to get comfortable and go, man, I'm good with God. Everything is fine. Because I saw a group of people that did that, and they missed God completely. They missed it completely. Now, even if we don't say miss the second coming of Christ, how many know that there's a lot that's going to happen before the second coming of Christ? In other words, God's doing a lot in the earth today. He's doing a lot in the church. He's doing a lot through people today. You know what? And I don't want to miss that. I want to be part of that. I want to be on the forefront of that. If God's doing anything in the earth today, I want to be part of it, and I want one life to be part of it. But we we don't just get that by default. We don't just get that because we have some title or label as Christians or we have some status. No, I think that this parable reminds us that, hey, you may be invited, but you need to take that invitation serious. Because if not... He will find someone that wants to seek him with all of their heart. God will find someone that wants to pursue him, that wants nothing else in this life but him. He will find that. And he may have to bypass others to find that. So when I read this and see this in Scripture, I don't really focus too much on the Pharisees as much as I are the Jewish people. I go... How do we make sure that's not us? How do we not repeat those mistakes? How do we live a a life where we're tender and sensitive to God and we're we're humble and we're in a constant place of of seeking Him and trying to hear His voice and please Him? I don't think any of us fully understand how seductive the spirit of this world is and how when you live in a culture like ours in America, how easy it is to just adopt the patterns and the ways of thinking. And before you know it, you're about that much different than the, than the world itself, the, the culture at large. And you go, well, you know, well, I'm a Christian. They're not. That's exactly what the Jews, the Jews would have looked at the culture around them and they would have said, oh, well, we're not like those, we're not like those dirty sinners. We're Jews. We're the, we're the kids, we're the kingdom, you know, the sons of the kingdom. We're not like them. And it was that attitude that caused them to miss it. It was that attitude that, that displeased God. There was one parable, I think I read it a couple Sundays ago. The Jews were all high and mighty about something Jesus was saying. And he looked at them and he said, let me tell you something. The tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before you. He said, they're ahead of you. In other words, if there's a hierarchy of who's getting in, he said the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the, they're the lowest of the low. He said they're coming in before you. That's how far away from me you really are. 
And again, I, I, I pray, hope that's, you're like, man, look, we're here on a Wednesday night. We're trying to go Africa. And I, I'm with you. I agree. I'm just saying, and, and pray, hey, maybe that's no one in this room. All, and all, but all I'm saying is this is how I think about myself. This is not, I'm not even really saying this to you. This is how I think about myself. When I'm talking about, I go, God, I don't ever want to assume that because I'm a pastor or because I've been raised in church my whole life that I can just go on cruise control. No, I, I want to constantly be seeking you, not out of fear or any, just that's, I love you and I want to be at the forefront of what you're doing. And this is a healthy warning, I think, to, to all believers, to all Christians, people that know God. Okay, people that know the word, that was the Jews, that was the Pharisees. Okay, they taught it. Remember, they are just like me. They're teaching it. They're explaining it to others. They're the experts on it. They missed the whole thing. They missed the first coming. They saw Jesus face to face and could not recognize that it was the Son of God. That's scary. And you go, well, you know, that would never happen to me. Well, that's what they would have said. So it takes a heart of humility that doesn't have confidence in the flesh and doesn't have confidence in any of those things. And actually the scripture tells us that he who thinks he stands to take heed lest he fall. Because it's when you think you stand and you think, oh, everything is good. He says, no, you're on shaky ground because you don't have the humility to realize that, no, you're not infallible. You're not infallible. It's kind of funny because if you think about who we really are, we would be in this God's calling us poor, crippled, lame, highways and hedges like that. that he's talking about us. So I guess that's our status. But how many of you would rather go into the kingdom like that than, than have the, the, stat, you know, the high status of the Jews? Hey, if I'm poor, crippled, and lame, and that's, I, at least I got in. Glory to God. So, I think what I wanted you to, to get out of this tonight is just to examine yourself. The Bible, the Bible talks about that, to examine ourselves, you know, to look at our lives, look at our hearts, and are we, you know, are we pursuing God? Don't, don't let your heart get cold. Don't let your heart get too comfortable where you're, you're just on cruise control. You know, do, you got to do things periodically to stir up that passion. You know, in, in uh, Revelation 3, I believe it is, when he's talking to the church of Laodicea and he's talking to him about being lukewarm, he said, look, go back and do the things you did at first. What would you do when you first got saved? Did you pray? you read the Bible? Did you share your faith? Did you go to prayer meeting? Did you go to church on Wednesday night? What, what did you do that when you were so on fire for God and you were so passionate about God, what did you do at first? He said, go back and do those things and stir that up. 